Hello and welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Janine Jones, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Harvard Westlake. Janine has a very interesting story, having grown up in mostly Ohio as the child of educators, went to Spelman for undergrad and then Howard for law school. So we talk a little bit about how HBCUs have influenced Janine in her current work. And she practiced law for 15 years before moving to Los Angeles and then eventually starting at Harvard-Westlake, first in the admission office and now both in admission and in her current role. There are many fascinating topics surrounding DEI that we discussed. I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is The Supporting Cast. Janine Jones, thank you for joining me on the supporting cast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so first, I think, you know, the, the concept of what we're going to call DEI, for those who aren't familiar with those letters, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. You are Harvard Westlake's first official director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. What does that mean at Harvard Westlake? Well, uh, to take it back a little bit, sure. because that will help, I think, frame the position. Yeah. Um, so a about six years ago, Rick Commons came in as a newish president. I think mm-hmm. he was in his second year when he realized that we, as a school, were somewhat behind in terms of having one person that is dedi- that was dedicated to looking at issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. So he asked a small group of people that um, had the title of diversity task force. And so these three individuals researched proven practices, not best practices, but proven practices mm-hmm. at independent schools across the countries, uh, across the country. What are our peer schools doing in this space? And so they came up with, they traveled across the country, they interviewed numerous people at different independent schools, made the recommendation that One, we should do a climate survey at Harvard-Westlake to determine what is our climate. We don't know. We had a lot of anecdotal data, but we really didn't have any sort of um, hard data, any empirical data. And so one was the climate survey, and then two, this diversity task force made the recommendation that we had one person or that we have one person dedicated to diversity, equity, and inclusion because what happens is when it's everybody's responsibility, it tends to be no one's Yeah, because I was about to say kind of a, a one philosophy on this is shouldn't it be everyone? Shouldn't it be the advancement offices, the admission offices? Yeah. Responsibility and, as well. And so to preview what I would say in terms of how we have implemented diversity, equity, and inclusion here or how we have tried to roll out the implementation of it is that it is everybody's job, that it is integrated into everything that we do. And so while I may be the first director of diversity, equity, and inclusion here, and I may be the only one holding that title currently, I think that it is everybody's job here to do this work and that it isn't just solely on me. I don't actually think it is on me 100% at all. You know, it really is everybody's job. And And I I will say, as a colleague of yours, you you and your uh, colleagues, because there's a couple of, of folks who work with you on, on DEI principally, 
Um, in terms of the brown bag lunches, th there's been so much outreach to all faculty and staff to kind of bring people into this world and educate us all about what we can do. Better. Yeah, and I think that that is going to be the only way that we are really effective in the work that we're doing when everybody feels like they have um, a piece of this and they have um, a stake in the outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that if it is top down where it is just me coming in and saying, Harvard Westlake, you will do one, two, three. Yeah. I just don't think that that is going to be as meaningful, nor yeah. do I think it's going to be as lasting. So when we, so when that task force made the recommendation to Rick and senior leadership at that time, it was what I said, two things, the climate survey yeah. and then the position. And so we undertook the survey um, in 2016 and had a company come in and interview more than 300 members of our community. And then they summarized those findings in a 43-page report hmm. that made very specific recommendations for things that we could do better, also recognized things that we were doing well mm -hmm. up to that point. And so one of the things, to kind of fast forward to what I was just saying, one of the things that that climate survey identified as a need for us was professional development right. for our faculty and staff. And so even if we have the best programs and classes and we bring in the most diverse student um, bodies that we could ever find, mm -hmm. if we don't have adults in our community who understand the concepts around diversity, equity, and inclusion, we're just not going to be as effective. And yeah. so there was, it seemed to be, it seemed that there was a desire for professional development with our adult community. Yes. And so we've been working on that since I started. And so the climate assessment, um, one of the key findings was professional development for the faculty, that there was a craving and a need for that. Were there other issues that you recall, against a 43-page mm -hmm. document, you don't have to summarize the whole thing, but were there one or two other really salient points that you thought when you looked at that, gosh, we need to focus on this as a community. Yeah. I mean, another big one was um, the silo effect that we have here on campus. Um, and if I think about what what people take away when I say on campus, what do you even think about? So if you if your office or if you are primarily on the middle school campus, if I say middle school or if I say campus, you think middle school. Mm -hmm. And so because we are separated geographically by eight miles from the upper school campus, because we're sitting here on the middle school campus yeah. right now, people feel very disconnected. They feel disconnected based on their campus. A lot, there's a lot of, um, f there's a huge feeling of being siloed within your department mm -hmm. as well. So if you are, if you teach in the math department, let's say at the middle school, that's kind of your world. Every now and again, you may get out and have lunch on the commons with colleagues and be able to interact across departments. But overwhelmingly, we are very siloed in our own particular departments and campuses. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that... Um, hinders a sense of community mm -hmm. and it doesn't allow people to get to know each other. It doesn't allow people to really feel that sense of belonging that we talk about a lot um, as one of our visions that each and every member of our community will feel an equal sense of belonging. Yeah. So, can, I, can I push you on that for a second? Course. Because there's one, you know, this, this is something I've understood to be enormously important at a, at a school community is not just that people feel included, but that they feel like they belong. Can you kind of describe what 
what that nuance is and how we try to achieve it. Yeah, be- absolutely. Because people oftentimes think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they're so focused on diversity. They're yeah. so, so focused on numbers. Right. And they think that that's all that it's about. But if you have a very diverse community, but then people come here and they ex- and there's an expectation that everybody act the same, everybody um, assimilate, then that person who may be in the minority in whatever way, yeah. it doesn't, it's not just about race, whatever minority um, group to which that person might belong, if they feel like they have to shed their sense of individual self in order to fit in here, that's not true belonging. Yeah. And so there's that inclusion piece is extremely critical to us and that every single member of the community really does feel like they have a place and does feel like they're seen and does um, have that feeling like they can grow here as well and become who they are supposed to be. And how do you think we're doing? Um, so I think we're doing well. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty critical. So I, I you know, I, I try to, I try to be positive, um, but also very realistic at the same time. And so do I think that every single person in the Harvard-Westlake community is walking around our campus today with that equal, equal sense of belonging that we really want and that we strive for? No, but I also know that we have 12 to 18-year-olds. Yeah. And so that also has a huge um, uh, is a huge piece of this and that we know that they're at um, a critical stage of their own identity development. Sure. Um, and so I think we're doing pretty well. And I think that the intentions are so overwhelmingly good yeah. in our community that I have the highest of hopes. So if something is not going particularly well or if somebody's having a bad experience, I don't think it's because anyone here has bad intentions. Yeah. I think it is just because they're unaware of how their actions are impacting someone else. And so in the DEI space, there's this huge concept of impact versus intent. Yeah. And so people so often are overwhelmingly focused on their intent. I didn't mean to offend. I didn't mean to hurt someone's feelings. Sure. I didn't mean to do X, Y, Z. But if we really spend the time thinking about the impact of our actions and how we are treating others, then that's where we're really going to make true progress. Speaking of intent versus impact, this is so it's important to inter-office relationships that people are having. You know, I didn't, you intend to do something, yet the impact is felt differently. It, it happened in personal relationships mm-hmm. all the time. I'm curious about the perception of DEI itself, mm-hmm. that for some people, obviously the intent of, of DEI efforts at the school is incredibly noble. I believe that. You do. Mm-hmm. I think Rick Commons and the administration believes that and our faculty and staff by and large. Some people... The impact of it to some in our community is that it's political mm-hmm. somehow, that it is uh, the liberal agenda uh, coming after our kids or, mm-hmm. or impacting our community. Can you speak to those who feel that way or that that is the impact that they feel? Yeah, absolutely. And so I will say that um, I never invalidate how people feel. Sure. So if somebody feels that, they are completely entitled to their feeling and to live the truth of intent versus impact, I ask lots of questions. 
how, what is happening on a daily basis that makes you feel like that? And mm-hmm. I separate that from the philosophical conversation about whether or not DEI is politically related. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we have um, tried to do our work in is in a non-political way. And when people want to pull DEI into the political stratosphere, I walk that back or I slow I slow us down to say, what is it about what we're talking about that is inherently political? Because it's very easy to say this work is a liberal agenda, mm-hmm. but when you really drill down in it or into it, we're talking about empathy. We're talking about compassion. Mm-hmm. And those are not just liberal agendas. I mean, right. I, I, I'm almost positive that the people who are feeling this way would not say that they want to be in a community that is um, that lacks compassion yeah. or lacks empathy. And so if we want to have a political conversation, if we want to talk about liberal ideology or conservative ideology, let's have that conversation. We had a um, speaker at the upper school last year who came in to talk about socialism versus capitalism. That is a very political conversation yeah. that we can have. Um, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about DEI. So I would just ask more questions. So that leads me into uh, a framework that we've presented to the community that is the Seven Agreements of Courageous Conversations. Mm. And so it is completely appropriate for us to have political conversations. Are those DEI conversations? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But if we are talking about just a political conversation where we might disagree this framework for um, this, these seven agreements for courageous conversations are things like staying engaged, being okay with discomfort, expecting and accepting non-closure, but always being respectful, um, assuming good intentions, things like that yeah. are part of this framework for courageous conversations. So I think we should be having the conversation. Yeah. I don't think we should be scared of having the conversation. I just don't like the tendency on... Um, from any angle to be dismissive of it and just say DEI is political Um, or to on the other side of the equation to just dismiss the opinions of those who believe that to be the case. Does that make sense? So um, I think we can't be afraid of the conversation. In terms of diversity of opinion, I think you and I would both agree if you have people with diverse opinions around the table, the the quality of the education is enhanced and that's something we would all want. What about when an opinion, this is always the tricky thing about DEI in my mind, is what if someone, a a student, has the opinion that the Holocaust didn't exist Mm -hmm. or they believe in a white nationalist uh, Mm -hmm. sort of foreign policy or immigration policy, let's say? How do we handle those tricky – because sometimes there's there's gray areas, which are even more tricky. But let's say it's, it's completely clear. This is someone's absolute belief. How do we handle issues where a diversity of opinion impacts or, or there is an opinion that's espoused that might be hurtful to to folks in our community in a unique way? I mean, I think that's hard. And I yeah. don't think that there is any bright line rule for how you handle that particular situation. Um, I think that we have to have um, the courage to support our values as a community. And so if there is an opinion, if there's an opinion that someone has formed after 
doing research and being educated about a topic that conflicts with our values, then I think that we have to handle that um, particular set of circumstances um, with courage and bravery. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's difficult. You're right. It is yeah. in the gray. And I don't think it benefits us to say, if you believe in white nationalism, you cannot be a student here. Right. Now, there are people in our community who would say that. They would say there is absolutely no way. I think that we need to, we're an educational institution. Yeah. That is our role here. Um, there are going to be circumstances and beliefs that we do not support. Absolutely. I remember two, if it was two or three years ago, I can't remember when um, Charlottesville happened. Yeah. And Rick came out in his convocation um, opening remarks and talked about our values mm-hmm. and said that uh, belief in white nationalism conflicts with our values here at Harvard Wesley. Yeah. And so if we have a student who is promoting white nationalism mm-hmm. on our campus, we're going to have to have some really intense discussions. Yeah. Um, and so, but we also don't want to go too far where, and I'm not saying white nationalism um, is not that bad, um, <laughs> but we don't want to go too far where we are dictating to students and community and adults and families um, what their beliefs should be. Because I think that that um, runs contrary to what we're promoting. And we do believe in diversity of opinion, but it has to fit within our set of values. And if you are a person who does not support that equal sense of belonging for every single member of our community through your actions, Mm -hmm. um, then we we really are going to have to think long and hard about that. So I don't think there is any way to proscribe a set of circumstances that are unacceptable on our campus. We really do have to um, deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Well, I thank you for the work Mm -hmm. that you do. And I think what some people who have opinions about these things outside of the school context forget is that we're dealing with, with kids. You know, it's easy to think about an issue um, like uh, the, the, the transgender youth and think of it purely in the abstract as this political issue mm. or a political lightning rod, whereas here on campus we are dealing with students every day who are dealing with gender identity issues or, or discovering their own gender identity and expression as yeah, well. And I, and I think that what I find is that people just aren't educated on topics. And so it's hard for me to, or or I rarely engage in a conversation with somebody on some sort of quote unquote controversial topic. And then at the end of that conversation, um, think, oh, that person's just a horrible person. Sure. What happens most of the time is the person hasn't really thought the issue through Mm -hmm. before forming their own opinion on it. And so, you know, I'm not sure I I struggle with why um, somebody who is transgender causes controversy. Like I I just it's hard for me to understand that. But I also try to approach those conversations with empathy and compassion for the other person and try to give them um, space to ask questions if they come to that conversation with a willingness to learn yeah. um, and uh, and not 
with heels dug in saying yeah. there's, you know, that I get to dictate how you live your life uh, because yeah. you, um, the way you live your life contradicts my personal beliefs and my morals and values, which I, yeah. that, that's, that's a challenge yes. for me. So Janine, uh, we work down the hall from each other. We talk to each other all the time, but I don't know that much about your upbringing and where you grew up. So where did you grow up? Where were you born? So I was born in upstate New York. I was born in Albany, New York, and mm. I lived there for four years. My parents are both educators, which will make sense as I explain our kind of movement. But yeah. My dad's a college professor. My mom was an elementary school teacher. And hmm. so my uh, dad worked at the State University of New York, and that's where I was. So that's when I was SUNY, born. SUNY Albany. SUNY Albany. Yeah. And so I was born in Albany, but at age four, we moved down to Maryland, and he worked at the University of Maryland College Park. Hmm. And so I grew And what was his field of study? So is? he... So Two, twofold. It was education. So mm -hmm. he taught students who were getting their PhDs in education, but he also had a specific focus on foreign language. Mm. And so he was, um, well, it was foreign language when he was teaching. It's now world language, but um, so world languages. Um, so he was, um, he spoke Spanish, spoke uh, French was learning Russian and learning Chinese. So he was a languages person. Wow. Um, and so he moved our family from New York down to Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, and so I partially grew up in Columbia, Maryland, but I essentially claim Columbus, Ohio, because we then moved um, from the University of Maryland at College Park to Ohio State University, got where it. he taught for 30 years. And he actually uh -huh. got his PhD from Ohio State, too. So this is why we you're were, such an Ohio State fan. This is why I'm fan. such an Ohio State fan. So my, my dad got his PhD from Ohio State. He was one of the first black men to get a PhD in his field from Ohio State. And wow. then he taught there for um, 37 years um, before he passed away. So we, so I, essentially claim Columbus, Ohio as where I grew up. As your up. hometown. Yeah, because I don't give everybody that level of detail. Albany and Columbia <laughs> and Columbus. So right. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. And what was your schooling like in Columbus, Ohio? Did you go to public school or a I did. So my parents school? my parents were firm believers in public education. Mm -hmm. And um, at, at the time when they were raising their girls. So they were firm believers in public education. So in Columbus, they have really strong um, suburban public schools. And so it was easy enough. I won't say easy, but it was easy enough for my parents to find a house in a highly ranked um, suburb. So I went to public school. And were there educators in your public high school who impacted you in a unique way that you think back to and said, huh, maybe I, I wouldn't have gone to law school or, or become an educator now if it weren't for so-and-so? You know, I would say um, the primary influences in education for me were my parents. Being the child of two educators, yeah. education was around me all the time. It was our conversation at the dinner table because we were either talking about my school day, my sister's school days, or my parents' school days. Yeah, so right. everybody was at school. At school, yeah. Everybody was at school. So they were my first influences in education, I would say. And then um, 
ironically, I really did not spend very much time thinking about what I wanted to do um, with my career. And I just knew that I did not want to be an educator when I was in high (laughs) school because I was always around it. And, you know, these were my parents and who wants to do what their parents do? Or I didn't. And so I'll never forget. I had a my 11th grade history teacher told me one day, oh, you should really go to. Uh, law school because you're always you know coming up with arguments in this class that show me that that's something that you should you should um, do and so you'll be interested in the fact that he also told me I should go to Princeton oh but I wise um maybe 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 (laughs) but I uh but I chose to go to Spelman Uh um and so that's how I decided to go to law school because this you know Mr. Lane my 11th grade history teacher told me I should try law school huh so I did and so uh, what was your Spelman uh, experience like? You know, I often talk to people who are not very familiar with the um, with historically black colleges and universities. Yeah. Um, I think more and more people are becoming more aware of them. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, going to a predominantly white public school for the overwhelming majority of my career, I did go to a French immersion school for three years when I lived in um, lived in Maryland, and that was pretty diverse. But once I got to Ohio, so from sixth to twelfth grade, I was in a predominantly white public school, and I had a great sixth through twelfth grade experience. Actually, yeah. K through twelve was wonderful. Yeah. I had a great educational experience, but I always knew that I always felt just a little bit out of place. Mm-hmm. I just felt like the um, school was not set up for me, whether it was academic or whether it was social. And like I said, I had great friends. I did well in school. So it wasn't a pro- it wasn't a problem from that sense. But I knew that I wasn't going to really have another opportunity in life to be with people who look just like me an overwhelming majority of the time. This was going to be one of the only times where I could really take race off the table. Hmm. And so I was a junior in high school. One of my best friends was, um, well, when I was a senior in high school, one of my best friends was a freshman at Spelman. And so I went down and visited her over homecoming. And if you know anything about um, black college homecomings, they're a huge party. And so I went down there and it was a ridiculously big party. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I made my decision that I was only going to Spelman. So I applied to Spelman and Ohio State, and that was it, and got into Spelman early, and then that was all she wrote. Wow. And so Spelman is not only historically black college, it's also Mm all-female, correct? So what was the experience like there of being uh, among only one gender and mostly one race, I suppose, not entirely one race, right? Yeah, mostly. And so – and I would also – add probably too, although we didn't know it at the time because I was in um, college from 1993 or 1997 and we weren't talking about gender at that time, um, but we probably weren't just one gender. That's true. That's right. Um, and so, but the conversations back then, it was a truly comfortable place for me to be. Yeah. Um, and so they had somewhat antiquated rules about boys on campus and they couldn't be on campus at certain hours. The overwhelming majority of people in your classes were women. Mm -hmm. Um, People from other schools could take classes with us. So people from Morehouse or Clark Atlanta or Morris Brown could take classes at Spelman. But the overwhelming majority of people that you were in class with every day were black women. 
Yeah. And so I think that looking back now, it just changed the way um, you interacted with each other. It changed the kind of vibe on campus. And so the antiquated rules that I was talking about, after hours, boys couldn't be on campus. Um, and if you, if there was ever a boy in one of the dorms, you had to yell down the hallway, you know, man on hall. And yeah. so it was just to, to be with people who look like you and are like you in so many significant and substantial ways in your life, at least for me, um, was really refreshing. How did it shape you now that you're a director of DEI at a school and you focus on folks at Harvard West, like not all looking alike. Mm -hmm. um, and so that bringing a sense of that discomfort, I guess, to this campus, mm -hmm. how do you contrast it with Spelman and how did the Spelman experience influence who you are today, despite yeah. being what sounded like an incredible experience? I think that it allowed me to develop a sense of myself mm. that I'm not sure I would have gotten had I not gone to Spelman. Hmm. And so it gave me a confidence and it gave me a voice in ways where I didn't have to think about gender and I didn't have to think about race when I was in those extremely formative years. Because we talk about our kids here being 12 through 18. That's year, that's 18 through 22 yeah. when you're in college. And so those are equally formative years. I mean, mm -hmm. we know that the prefrontal cortex doesn't close until age 23 or so. Yeah. And so those are... Like for men, it's later. Okay. Right? I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, maybe for you, but uh, especially Eli. But... Um, so I, you know, so those are really formative years. And I think that I really did, I was able to develop a sense of myself and a confidence for myself where, um, you know, you come into different situations like being at Harvard Westlake and you're dealing with these really challenging topics yeah. where people feel very um, emotional about the topics around diversity, equity, sure. and inclusion. I think that that own sense of my personal self is really helpful to not get deterred by um, detractors and people who don't really want to see DEI succeed. Mm. But knowing, but having my focus on that, um, that ultimate goal, which is that our kids are at the center of this and right. that their development is what's most critical and most important for us and that we are here to educate them and we are here to be supporters of them. And so what is it when you're on the plane and they tell you that you need to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on the your um, child or the person right. who's traveling right. with you who may not be able to do it for themselves? Well, that's kind of what I was able to do at Spelman. I was able to really get my oxygen hmm. um, and get my foundation. And I still have to do it. You know, you still have to take care of yourself as you get older um, and make sure that you're able to be there to be a true support. So when we have kids here in our community, whether they look like me or not, because I try to, because I'm not all things to all people. Mm -hmm. And there are so many different affinities here that with which I don't personally identify, yeah. but I try to use my own experience to help them in their personal journeys here in their personal development. So then you eventually go to law school, mm -hmm. you become an attorney, but you didn't love being an attorney or maybe you did for a while. I don't know. What's that story? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, so I practiced law for 15 years. Okay. I so did, it's a while. 
Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I was committed to it for yeah. a number of years, but um, I went to Howard Law School, so I went to another HBCU ah. following Spelman, um, and it was the perfect law school for me. I think the level of support that I had, both at Spelman and Howard, but um, law school is notoriously difficult, and first year of law school especially. And so while I hear many of my um, lawyer friends talk about the fact that it was look to your left, look to your right, you know, one of you won't be here in the next year, I didn't have that feeling at Howard. I had the feeling like we were all there to support each other. We were all there to um, help each other succeed. And I felt that from the professors. I felt like there was a real relationship with my professors and that they wanted us to become the best lawyers that we could possibly Mm. be. I also feel like uh, social justice is in my DNA, Mm -hmm. and Howard is a social justice law school. Mm. Um, One of my favorite quotes is uh, from Charles Hamilton Houston, and it's a lawyer is either a parasite on society or a social engineer. And Mm. so I think that that really speaks to kind of my personal disposition, and so it matched to go to Howard Law School. Um, and so Howard is co-ed. Howard, uh, right. Howard, Howard is um, multi-gender. And so... Yeah. Sorry, we I should have, say multi-gender. That's okay. No, we're all learning. That's you know? okay. Yeah. That's okay. Um, and so um, after law school, passed the bar and then started practicing and made my way into law firm life and large law firm life and had uh, got married while I was in law school, had my first child right after I graduated, so nine months pregnant, hmm. um, graduating from law school. <laughs> wow. And uh, and so I started practicing and, like I said, made my way into law firm life, but I had young kids and I had a husband and, you know, the lifestyle. Your husband, Chris Jones, by Chris, the way. Chris Jones, um, upper, upper school, school dean. Yes. Um, and so I, I wanted to spend time with them. Yeah. And so when you are a, a young associate, in a law firm, as you well know, you are billing a lot of hours and then you have hours that you can't bill that are still extremely critical to your development as a lawyer in a law firm. And I was a litigator. So there were so many Sundays where I was working, preparing for a deposition or an arbitration. Um, And so, or writing a brief that had to be filed, had to get it to the partner before it could go to the client, before it could be filed. So the time, um, it was so time consuming. And so I think that took some of the joy out of it for me. Um, And then I went to work for the former governor of Ohio, which I really enjoyed. That was, um, so I was a senior advisor and a deputy legal counsel to him. But then he wasn't reelected, and so I had to um, find another job pretty quickly after he wasn't elected, which I did, which wasn't a problem. But then just through that journey and through that process, really decided, you know, do I really want to miss my um, ch- the upbringing of my children? And I'll never forget one of my now best friends who was a mentor to me at that time. I uh, was part of an organization and she was speaking to our group and said that as a lawyer, she and as a judge, she had missed so much of her children's upbringing because she was campaigning and mm. she was always working. And my oldest was five years old at the time when she said that. And I thought, I don't want to say that. I want to be there for um, their upbringing. So then when we moved out to California, it was kind of the perfect timing to say, OK, let's let's really look at this and see 
what um, I really want to do with the rest of my life. And then came here to work at Harvard Westlake in the admission office. Yeah. And then and you still have a foot in the admission office. I do. Yeah. So I still do that. And that's, I, I mean, I love the work that we do in the admission office. And so I'm, I'm in the admission office by choice, yeah. um, not by force. And so if I wanted to be 100% DEI, I'm almost positive that Rick would be supportive of that. But I've asked to be uh, part of the admission office, one, because I do think it's extremely critical to the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, sure. but two, because I, I just love meeting the families and I love help uh, helping to shape the community that we're going to bring in and that we have here every single year. Where do you find joy in the work that you do? Obviously, this, you get you deal with a lot of difficult issues. There are difficult issues that come up almost every day yeah. in a variety of areas, uh, and so many of them will will fall upon your desk, or Rick will give you a call to ask your opinion on something. Um, where do you feel like, gosh, I'm I'm doing my my life's work. My um, I'm the, the the conviction that you gained when you were at Spelman, um, the sense of social justice that was. Uh, I guess, inspired within you at Howard. Where do you feel like you get to exercise that? Yeah, no, I think it's funny because I've thought back, how did I get here? I've thought back in terms of my life and you just kind of walked me through it as <laughs> yeah. well. Sorry. Um, but I, I, I think back to, to um, something that my parents did. In, so I grew up in, like I said, Columbus, Ohio, but the suburb was called Worthington. And so there was a group called the Worthington Alliance of Black Parents. And so my parents were um, some of the uh, parent leaders of that group. And I'll never forget that we, my parents and this group were asking the Worthington School Board to bring in an African-American studies course because um, we didn't have any sort of African-American figures that we were learning about as we went through school. And so I'm in, I'm probably a sophomore in high school and joined my parents on this march from the library to the school board in Worthington to advocate for this course. And so that was pr probably my first hmm. introduction into equity yeah. in a school. And so I think that that is now what drives me. And I know all throughout, whether it was college or law school or working on diversity committees when I was um, working for the various law firms um, or my work with the governor, which was around um, in part around minority businesses hmm. in the state of Ohio, um, just really ensuring that um, there are equitable practices in place. And so what honestly gives me so much joy is when a teacher or a student will come to me and say, I've been thinking about this issue and I want to do X. Hmm. And I feel like that to me is is it. That's where we are supposed to be, that we have so many different members of our community yeah. who are being extremely thoughtful about this work and they're doing something about it, not just that they thought, oh, that piqued my interest or, oh, I don't care about that. Yeah. But that there is something that's happened. They have identified it. They've had the ability to identify it. And then they're going to take action on it because I think individually that's going to improve our community to a place where it isn't just up to me. It's not just up to um, Nate Carden and Damara Signs as DEI coordinators. Um, it's not just up to the people who care about this, that we are all really yeah. starting to think more critically about our actions on a daily basis. And 
almost more important than that were willing to do something yeah. about it yeah. or, or willing to actually take action because it's great to be a nice person. Yeah. But it's a whole nother thing to actually effectuate change. It reminds me there was a student panel at the beginning of the school year for all the faculty and staff, which was terrific. And there were several students who were, some of whom were transgender. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the students was saying that in uh, their teacher comments, um, three of the five teachers had used she instead of they, mm -hmm. but that the, uh, and, and, her, uh, I guess their dean, mm -hmm. who identified this, reached out to the student and said, hey, I noticed that three of your five teachers used she instead of they. Mm -hmm. Would you like me to reach out to your teachers and let them know to, to change the pronoun? And I remember the student saying, you know, I wasn't that bothered by it, but what I appreciated so much was that the dean asked. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I think that's kind of what you're talking about, is that that dean didn't just go to uh, a brown bag lunch with Nate Carden and learn right. about... Uh, all these issues, as so many of us have done, but they actually took action to reach out to that student and make that student feel like they belong. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I think what I also took away from that panel, and I shared this with our entire adult community, and I shared it with the students who um, had the courage to sit on that panel and uh. talk to a, in a theater full of all of their teachers yeah. and adults in yeah. their um, school lives, at least, and how much bravery that takes yeah. that they were coming. They And I also think that it was a testament to our community, that they felt like our community, our adult community would be receptive to them sharing their comments because they weren't all easy um comments to hear because they they have some challenges that they're experiencing of course. still here in our community. And so the fact that our students were willing to talk about gender identity and sexual orientation on that panel at the beginning of the school year is um, a sign that we're, we're getting something right. Are yeah. we getting everything right? Absolutely not. But are we getting something right? Absolutely. Yeah. So to finish up, I wanted to ask just a few get-to-know-you questions. Okay. Uh, uh, you didn't already get to know me with well, a retrospective on my these life? These are less less depth but more fun. Maybe. Okay. Um, so the three questions I'm asking people kind of revolve around Los Angeles. LA is known for movies, um, for, for great food, and for great climate. First, what is Janine Jones's favorite movie? Oh, my gosh. I hate to say this favorite movie because I feel like there's absolutely no way this movie would be produced today, and it's probably horribly offensive oh, in perfect. some way. Perfect. You know, but it's real. It's coming to America with oh. Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. Like, I probably could recite line by line if the movie is playing with the fictional country of Zamunda and like just the, it's, it's probably all the way bad. But it's I'd such love that an amazing movie. movie. When uh, my wife was on maternity, when we were both on uh, maternity paternity leave mm -hmm. after Grace was born, we were watching, each taking turns watching movies that the other person hadn't seen. And, oh, okay. And Heather had never seen Coming to America uh, and she loved it. Yeah. Loved, loved it. So it we've is, seen it pretty recently. I think they're doing a sequel. Yeah. They're, or they're, are they doing a sequel or are they remaking it? Oh, so, are they remaking? Oh, I, I thought it might be a sequel, but okay. yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll be really interested in that, but I, I like cry every time <laughs> I see that movie and there are like lines that are part of my life yes. that are from that movie and I probably could watch it every single time it's on, so. Coming to America. Good one. Uh, second question. What's your favorite meal? It could be in Los Angeles or it could just be something that 
because Chris is the cook. Yeah, right? so it could be in Los. It's going to be in Los Angeles, okay. and it's going to be um, probably at my house because okay. Chris is the cook, and he's such a great cook. Gosh. Um, and so it's funny cause I'll, I'll sidebar really quickly. So my dad was also the cook in my family okay. when I was growing up. Me too. And so me too. So yeah. I, I think we've talked about yeah. that before. Yeah. So, um, so I was used to somebody else cooking and it not being me. So I never really kind of learned how to cook. Like <laughs> yeah. I can make a meal, but Chris is the better, better cook in our family. And so, um, I remember when, when Chris and I were first married and my dad was cooking all the time. Chris never thought that it would become him as kind of the primary chef, but now he enjoys it. But he makes it, he got this recipe from my dad who got it from somebody else, but there's this dish that's called Spanish tortilla. Mm. It's like potatoes oh, and yeah. onions and cheese just kind of all sauteed together and baked together. Yeah. And so it's a decently simple um, recipe, but I love it. And the joke is at my house that if it's made, then um, nobody can have more than like one bite of it because the rest has to be has to for me. For but so Spanish tortilla. Wow. That's my wild. And my dad makes Spanish tortilla. And it's one of his favorite things. To what make. is, this how is, so... is that made though? Like what's, what are the what ingredients? Uh, yeah. Peppers, onions, potatoes, egg, I think yeah. is in it. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, sort of baked. I don't think there's cheese okay. in one of the eggs. So there are no peppers in this and then there's cheese oh god so um but it's delicious and he could put whatever else he wants um with it but that has to be the that has to be the the, core that has to be the core of the meal right (laughs) it's horrible for your diet but it's delicious not too bad not too bad um third what's your favorite location in la what's your favorite place it's so funny because we we rarely go out to the beach. And so I know so, so many people think, oh, it's LA, you know, it's the You never West go to the Coast. beach as much as you, I never, you yeah. want to, right? No. Yeah. So we never go to the beach. Plus, I mean, the water is cold. I'm not going to get in there. And then, you know, sand is all, you know, kind of gross and gets in your clothes and all of your belongings. Seriously, one of my favorite places is um, to drive is where it's, it's like Beverly, uh, Beverly, Beverly Glen, south of Sunset. Like when you're driving into Beverly Hills, just from over Coldwater Canyon, hmm. when you drive in, like every time I drive right there on that stretch of road, I look around at the trees and it is so beautiful hmm. and kind of random, but that stretch of street, when you look around at that area of LA, like it, seriously gives and i've thought about this multiple (laughs) times because it just gives me so much joy to look around at the trees and usually you know the sun is shining or whatever but it's just just beautiful it is it's beautiful and also driving to the middle school campus also makes me feel really good Mm -hmm. i mean it is just gorgeous around this area it is and so you know it just it makes me feel good good last question I am the, as you know, a parent of a uh, almost fifteen month old daughter. Now you're the parent of two daughters. Have you put in her inquiry for Harvard Westlake just yet? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. I have some by some friends of kids of the same age who are already thinking about it. But yeah. um, what is your best parenting advice? It could be an original, um, or it can be something passed down to you. Hmm. Best parenting advice. Maybe particularly of girls, but it doesn't have to be just of girls. You know, I think that the way, something that Chris and I 
both agree on, which I will give him credit because I think he came into this um, feeling more like what I'm about to say, but really giving your kids space to make their own choices Mm -hmm. and not feeling like you have to dictate and curate every aspect of their lives. And so we may, there there are certain things that are a must, you know, you have to go to school, (laughs) you have to do your homework, you have to, you know, meet with your teachers and complete your obligations, things like that. Yeah. But we really try to provide the space for our girls to make their own choices, whether it is um, on the social side of things with friends or whether it is like with our oldest, the college choice. Um, and so what I have had my daughter going to school across the country, absolutely not. You right. know, I, would I remember you saying go. that. This isn't what we would have chosen. No. For, hey, it's a great, great university. Absolutely. By the way. Absolutely. And so I don't, I don't regret that choice or that decision, but we have made the intentional decision to support our kids and lead them where they need some leadership because we're still their parents, but really to allow them to develop that sense of self. And so I think for me, it comes from what I jokingly said earlier was, you know, with my 11th grade history teacher telling me, uh, you should go to law school. And I said, yep, okay, sure. Let me go. I don't think I spent enough time really thinking about what I wanted for my future. So Mm. really getting our girls to think critically about their actions um, and their choices, Mm -hmm. I think will set them up better for success in life. So we all want our children to do really well. And I think that desire causes... um, causes tension and causes anxiety and causes us as parents to try to map out our children's lives, Um, but really giving them choice and agency over their own lives. Got it. I think you got got to do that. How can you go wrong with that, right? Like, I mean, if they were making really terrible choices, (laughs) you know, I mean, we're not going to say, you know, oh, it's okay for you to go and be, you know, a drain on society or a delinquent or anything like that. But if it's within reason, you know, go for it, go for it. Yeah. We got to choose. We got to, we have to support our kids. Right. So Janine Jones, thank you so much. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I enjoyed this. Oh, me too. Uh, You are listening to the supporting cast. Thank you so much. Mm